0: you a question, how have the last few weeks been for you? We've been pretty full-on for many people here at King's. 30th anniversary celebration, uh, Christmas market, we've had record numbers in our furniture scheme over the last few weeks, super busy time for the food bank and the cafe, Uh, and running around getting everything ready for Christmas at King's next Sunday morning. And that is on top of everything else that happens at this time of year. You know, Christmas cards to write, uh, cakes to bake, parties to go to, endless parties obviously that I have to go to, uh, (laughs) presents to choose and buy and wrap. And oh, good news, the number of shopping days till Christmas is dwindling fast like sand in an egg timer. And some of us will be asking ourselves, How am I going to manage my already crowded diary? Who's coming home for Christmas and when? How am I going to fit everybody in? We've got 16 in our home over Christmas and New Year. how am I going to afford everything? And for Joseph and Mary, the events of Matthew 1 and 2 also describe a very eventful and very stressful few months. There has been, for them, a traumatic and unexpected pregnancy. There has been, because of that, severe relationship strain, a series of disturbing dreams, a long and tiring journey, the worst possible time to go into labour, and not ideal location for childbirth, let's be honest. Unexpected visitors from the East, weird presents that they bring, I mean, most people bring rattles and fluffy toys, don't they, for a new baby? What's a newborn child going to do with gold? And myrrh is an embalming spice for dead bodies. Who invited that guy along to to the celebration of the birth? I can imagine Joseph and Mary at the end of all this, looking at each other and saying to each other, well, that was a bit of a roller coaster, wasn't it, these last few weeks and months? But now, at last... We can maybe start to adjust to becoming a family and uh, settle back to some kind of normality. But in the next part of the story, as Sally has hinted earlier, things are going to be anything but normal for them. So let's read what happens next. We're looking at Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 23. It says, when they, that's the Magi, had gone... And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then, what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping, great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judah in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, having been warned in a dream. This is the fifth dream in two short chapters. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth, so it was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. So Heavenly Father, as we look at this passage of Scripture today, we ask that you would come and be with us, help us to listen to what you're saying to us, and know what it, how it applies to our own lives, and to... Be obedient to your voice. In Jesus' name, Father, we ask. Amen. So these mysterious visitors, these magi, have returned home, verse 13, and an angel, a messenger from God, appears to Joseph in a dream. Now, the prophet Joel had said about 500, 600 years BC that with the coming of the Messiah, In the last days, he would pour out his Holy Spirit upon men and women alike. And he said men would see visions and dream dreams. There's going to be new revelation. There's going to be signs and wonders. And God is going to begin to move in exciting new ways. And what Matthew is doing is he's telling us here that that era has arrived. There is an exciting new age that is dawning. God is initiating something new and unprecedented and significant with the coming of Jesus. Get up, he says. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child, your child, to kill him. And Matthew calls this a dream. I think Joseph would have called it a nightmare, don't you? Herod... This insanely jealous king is determined to kill Jesus, this little boy. And this is just the first of five assassination attempts on Jesus' life recorded in the Gospels. After this one, Satan goads him to plunge to his death from the roof of the temple, Matthew 4. Then locals in Nazareth attempt to throw him off a cliff, Luke 4. Then Pharisees pick up stones to stone him at the Feast of Tabernacles in John 8. And after that, a number of Judeans seize him and try to murder him at the Feast of Dedication in John 10. Five assassination attempts. There's the ones we've heard about. And that's not counting six other references to plots or schemes to kill him while he was. adult. In all the uncertainties of their life, Mary and Joseph must feel real anxiety at this point. Where where are we going to go? How are we going to get there? What is Herod so angry about? What will become of us? What's going to happen to our baby? But God has spoken and when God speaks, Brothers and sisters, when God speaks, it's, it's time to act. You have to respond when God speaks. Verse 14, so Joseph gets up. He takes the child and his mother during the night. That shows you, doesn't it, the sense of urgency he must have felt. During the night, and they leave for Egypt. They leave for this foreign land with a different language, a different culture. There's no job for him there. There's no security. It's the great unknown. Off he goes with his wife and child. Some of you actually have done that recently, this year. You've come to this country from another one. And you've left everything you have to come here because God called you here. That's why you're here. And some of you, like Joseph and Mary, are fleeing from violence and persecution. We have people in that situation here. And here, in this country, you have found safety and refuge. And we honor you. We really do. You're actually following in Jesus' footsteps in a way that we, most of us here, probably never will. And in verse 20, which is probably about a year or 18 months later, God says, Get up again. It's time to leave Egypt. And where are they going to go? The dream just says to the land of Israel. It's a big place, Israel, about the size of Wales. It's a big country. Joseph and Mary both have family down in the south. Maybe there then. Maybe there. That's where they should settle. But verse 22 says, when Joseph heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea, in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. So Judea is the south. They've got to go somewhere else. So they head for Nazareth, much further north, which of course we know from Luke's gospel is where Mary is from. It's her hometown. It must have felt like their homelessness and their rootlessness And their feeling of being vulnerable would never end for them. You get that feeling sometimes it's just one thing after another. The stress you live under just feels relentless. If you're a Christian never forget that you are a follower of the one who slept as a baby in somebody else's manger. And he crossed Galilee the lake in somebody else's boat and he fed crowds of people with somebody else's lunch and he rode into Jerusalem on somebody else's donkey and he ate the last supper with his disciples in somebody else's upper room and he was buried in somebody else's tomb and he lived in constant danger in somebody else's country. And these are Actually, there are two angles to the story of Jesus' birth. Uh, in Luke's gospel, that's the one we mostly read at Christmas, it's full of wonder and angels and joy and friendly farm animals and quaking shepherds. It's got a warm glow to it, Luke's gospel. And that's the side that dominates school nativity plays and Christmas cards. But Matthew paints a much darker picture as we've said. And actually, both aspects, the bright side and the dark side, they're both true. They're both different sides of the same coin. And in Matthew, the emphasis is much more on the crisis in Mary and Joseph's relationship that brings them to the brink of divorce. And five strange dreams, as I've mentioned, disturbing dreams, and an anxious family fleeing for dear life. And this evil villain, uh, Herod, who doesn't feature at all in Luke's Gospel, but who dominates the narrative, is there just over the narrative all the time in Matthew. And, of course, this appalling bloodbath of innocent children in verses 16 to 18. On the screen here is a painting depicting a terrified mother holding her young child. As another woman in the background, you can just see her, runs away from danger. This was painted in 1825 by the French artist Leon Cognier, and uh, it's all about this passage of scripture. Look at her hand, if you can see it there, just covering his mouth in a desperate but probably futile attempt to hush the sound of his crying with all the commotion. She's trying to hide. But look, she's hopelessly exposed, she's cornered, trapped, and her child seems doomed. Now, as we focus in on the woman's face in Konya's painting, notice her eyes wide with fear, with alarm. There's a look of shock on her face, isn't it? It's brilliantly painted. She could be an Israeli mother on the 7th of October as terrorists sweep through her kibbutz. She could be a Palestinian mother in the Gaza Strip, trying to stay alive with the sound of missiles and bombs flying overhead. Bethlehem had a population, they think, of about 2,000 people at that time. So, not a big place. It's the little town of Bethlehem, the carol gives away. It's a little town. Uh, and if the demographics were typical, There maybe would have been around 25, perhaps 30 little boys aged two and under at that time. And Herod sees these little boys as a challenge to his authority. And each child will have had a mother who would weep for the rest of her days for her little boy, bringing grim fulfillment to this prophecy of Jeremiah that this was going to happen one day. And such were Herod's vanity and his paranoia that he thought nothing of committing atrocities like this to protect his power base from others. And we know from historical sources outside the Bible that he was an obsessively jealous man. Uh, he routinely had people executed, including his wife, or one of them, and three of his own sons, if he suspected that they were a threat his throne. And Herod is actually a, a grim reminder of what the Bible everywhere asserts, that unimaginable evil is absolutely real in our world. It's why Jesus said to pray that God would deliver us from it, deliver us from evil. Scripture says that many antichrists The polar opposite of the Prince of Peace, an Antichrist. Many Antichrists will come into the world. The Bible says, and Herod the Great, as he was called, was one of the first. Antichrist, literally he was. Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler, Mao Zedong, Pol Pot. In our lifetimes have been others. Alive today, there are more. King Jong-un. Vladimir Putin, Bashar al-Assad and sadly we probably haven't seen the last of them. The book of Revelation, last book of the Bible, teaches in highly symbolic pictorial language that what we see physically here on earth often has an unseen spiritual reality behind it and there is and there always has been an evil assault from the devil on life itself, even from the womb, on the family, on the gospel, on truth. There's something of a demori- demonic about Herod. We know what is behind him. And the Bible doesn't sugarcoat the Christmas story, or any other story, in fact. It tells us the truth about the darkness that is, the human heart is capable of, and it tells us the whole truth, whether we like it or not. And this truth about evil in the world, I want to say, affects us as followers of Jesus disproportionately in the world. The Independent newspaper carried an article a few years ago with this headline Christians, the world's most persecuted people. Does that surprise you? Well, that's what they found. And according to the International Society of Human Rights, which is a secular organization, it calculates that 80 percent, 80, of all religious discrimination in the world today is directed at Christians. International Christian Concern, ICC, released its annual report on the persecution of Christians last month, November. In Nigeria, I mention this one because we have Nigerians amongst us, ICC cites numerous horrific atrocities, quote-end-quote, committed against Christians by Islamist terrorists. Between March and July this year, some 550 Christians were killed there, and that's just those known and reported to ICC. And they accuse the Nigerian government of turning a blind eye or worse. In North Korea, there are an estimated 400,000 Christians, but they're forced to practice their faith in secret or else risk imprisonment, or torture, or execution. In just one incident there, ICC claims that earlier this year, a two-year-old toddler and his parents were, all three of them, given a life sentence after a Bible was found in their home. Can you imagine that? In India, home to 26 million Christians, A surge in radical religious nationalism poses a grave threat to Christians, and violent incidents against them are escalating. This year, in Manipur, northeast India, for example, Christians have been targeted with virtual impunity, leaving dozens dead and hundreds of churches destroyed. And you ask yourself, I didn't know about this. Well, why is there so little outrage Or protest or even reporting on their behalf. And it's not just actually on the other side of the world. There has been an increase recently of anti-Christian hate crimes across Europe as well. In particular concern has been raised about treatment of Christians in the UK. According to a report again published this year by the Observatory on Intolerance and Discrimination against Christians in Europe, They say there was a 44% increase in anti-Christian hate crimes between 2021 and 2022. Arson attacks on churches in that time saw a rise of 75%. And at the same time, the stigmatization and criminalization even sometimes of Christians for voicing mainstream Christian teaching on controversial issues is on the rise. Do you know there's a Christian teacher, maths teacher I think he is, in Ireland who was sacked and imprisoned for a 100 days last year for refusing to address one of his students by his preferred but factually incorrect pronouns. George Orwell was right when he said this, the further a society drifts from the truth, the more it will hate those who speak it. I quote, the further a society drifts from the truth, the more it will hate those who speak it. I was reading through the book of Acts um, a week or two ago, and I was struck by a verse I'd never noticed before. And this is at the end of the book of Acts, which is about the extraordinary growth of the church in the first century, signs and wonders, people being raised from the dead, the multiplication of conversions, people, churches getting planted all over the place, amazing things were happening. There's this in the very last chapter of Acts, talking about um, Christianity. It says people everywhere are talking against this sect. Not even called a religion, just thrown away as a sect. The Bible says that everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Jesus himself said, Everyone will hate you because of me. But he also said this Happy are you when people insult you. Happy, not sad. Happy are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, he said, because great is your reward in heaven. Do you believe that? Does my reward in heaven for being faithful to Christ outweigh my desire to be popular and accepted? Does it for you? Well, these are the choices we may increasingly face in our generation. Between 1899 and 1901, there was a great anti-Christian Uprising in China. It was called the Yechuan Movement. And it was a sudden national mood swing that brought severe persecution to China. 188 missionaries and 32,000 Chinese Christians were bound in public. Their noses and ears were cut off, eyes gouged out before they were beheaded, Lizzie Atwater was an American missionary to China at that time. She was 22 years old, and she was pregnant with her first child. There's a painting over there. And she wrote to her family these words on the 3rd of August, 1900, in the middle of this wave of persecution. This is what she wrote in her letter. Dear ones, I long for a sight of your dear faces, but I fear we shall not meet on earth. I am preparing for the end very quietly and calmly. The Lord is wonderfully near, and he will not fail me. I was very restless and excited while there seemed to be a chance of life, but God has taken away that feeling, and now I just pray for grace to meet the terrible end bravely. The pain will soon be over, and oh, the sweetness of the welcome above my little baby will go with me. And I think God will give him to me in heaven and my dear mother will be so glad to see us. I cannot imagine the Saviour's welcome. Oh, that will compensate for all of these days of suspense. Dear ones, live near to God and cling less closely to the earth. There is no other way by which we can receive that peace from God which passes understanding. I must keep calm and still these hours. I do not reject um, regret sorry, coming to China, but I am sorry to have done so little. My married life, two precious years, have been so very full of happiness. We will die together, my dear husband and I. I used to dread separation, If we escape now, it will be a miracle. i send my love to you all, and the dear friends who remember me." Twelve days later, this woman, Lizzie, and her husband, and the unborn baby, and six other missionaries, were hacked to death. And later, when Lizzie's parents in Ohio, USA, heard the dreadful news of the death of their daughter, and son-in-law, and unborn grandchild, they said through tears these words, We bear no grudge. We gave them to that needy land of China. And China will yet believe the truth. Why did Satan single out China in this wave of persecution? Perhaps it was because of the extraordinary potential of that land. And in our own lifetimes, it's still happening today, there's an unprecedented revival happening in that country. Some estimates put the number of Christians there at 100 million probably a bit over the top. It's probably more like 80. But it's a lot of people. And Lizzie's blood and that of her husband and their unborn child will be avenged by God alone. The Bible speaks of the terrible consequences for those who did not choose to fear the Lord, like Herod. The book I read this year, oh, The God I Don't Understand, by Christopher Wright. He describes What awaits those who die in rebellion against God? And he talks about it as literally a fate worse than death. And he says this, it's a quote worth um, repeating in full. On the judgment day of God, he says, all the wrongs will be exposed. There will be no longer any hiding place. No secret accounts can see all the fruits of exploitation. No tight security, bulletproof cars or safe houses. No excuses for ourselves or others. No more skilled lawyers pleading technicalities. No more sentimental allowance for old age and infirmity. No more recourse even to the oblivion of suicide. No more escape at all by any means, any place ever. The day of judgment, he said, will reveal everything, assess everything, and deal with everything. All repented, persistent wickedness will be met with the verdict of God's perfect justice. And that divine verdict will be public, vindicated by the evidence, indisputably validated beyond complaint or appeal, irreversible and inescapable. But the sweetness of the gospel is this. This is where I want to land now. The sweetness of the gospel is this. No matter how hard a human heart becomes, even as hard as Herod's, or more obstinate still, it's never too hard to be able to turn to God again and be cleansed and made new and softened by the Holy Spirit. None of us here, I can guarantee, are anywhere near Herod's league of evil. But the Bible is clear that we have all sinned and we have all fallen short of the glory of God. Why be separated from God forever when you can have his blessings forever? If you don't have to, God loves you. And if you'd been the only person who'd ever lived, who, who Jesus needed to come and, and be born for and, and die for to save, he would still have come as a baby. He'd still have grown as a boy, lived as a man. He'd still have gone to the cross for you. Lay down his life for you. He loves you that much. But a God he is. And it may be that for some here today, right now, God is speaking to you, to giving you a fresh chance to give your life to Christ, to turn to Christ. Do that today. If you've not ever done that before, don't put it off till tomorrow. Do it today. The Bible says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. He's near, he's in this place today. And that is why Jesus came at Christmas the seek and save the lost well you and I don't know what tomorrow holds but as somebody once said we do know who holds tomorrow's and he says again to each of us here in this room in this world of constant wickedness he says what he said to Joseph to us get up time to take action is now And Paul's going to lead us now in a time of prayerful response.